Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. Genesis 46. I know we lost a week, so let me recap what happened, okay? Um, um, we didn't lose a week. We just didn't go in Genesis. Um, what happened? See, I'm trying to recap y'all, and I can't even remember. Uh, good thing I wrote it down. Okay, Jacob is told by his sons that Joseph is alive, and they set, they're about to set off to Egypt uh, to stay there to survive this famine. And we're going to pick up uh, Genesis 46.1 under the heading, Jacob goes to Egypt. So Israel, who is Jacob, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. So at this time, Jacob and his family, I don't know if we've been keeping track of where they are, but they've been living in Mamre, which is 25 miles from Beersheba, where they end up, where they stop so that Isaac can make sacrifices to God, the God of his father, Isaac. Um, if you recognize the name of this place, Beersheba, you should, because um, we visited, I be- I, it, like I believe, last year this time last year. Um, In Genesis 26, verse 23, it says, from there, he went up to Beersheba, and this is Isaac, his father. That night, the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and it will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. So the reason they stop here in Beersheba is not because it's like a good stopping place. They're not like we're going to do 25 miles a day. That's pretty much what we figure the horses can do or the donkeys, whatever we have here. It's that specifically they stop in Beersheba so that uh, Jacob can make sacrifices upon the altar of his father, Isaac. Um, In this time, altars... Uh, when they were built, they were specifically dedicated to our particular God. Um, so when they referred to an altar, they would call it by its name. It was called by the place it was built, who actually built it, and the God that, the God that it honored. So that's why I said he went to, to make this sacrifice, uh, to make the sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. It's telling us, when it says that, it's telling us this is the same altar that Isaac built. Right. And we have the same same interaction. It's so funny. He says, I'm the God of your father, Isaac. He says that to him. And when he was talking to Isaac, he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. And what a truly great picture of what Isaac truly built. Yes, he built this altar that that Jacob is now using. But what he really built here is, is is a relationship with God for his son. Right. Like Isaac, it it doesn't say notice it doesn't say I am the God of Abraham, the the original guy I talked to. He said it's I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of your father, meaning he was just as much Isaac's God as he was Abraham's God. 
Isaac had the same relationship with God that Abraham had. It says this because God was just as much the God of Isaac as the God of Abraham. Isaac had made God his God. It wasn't like just something his, his father passed down a little bit. It was just as real to Isaac. And he passed it on to his son, Jacob. He passed it on to his son. son. And all these years later, the foundation is built. It's not just an altar that he built. He built this family with a relationship to God. And he's here at this altar making sacrifices to the same God on the altar that his father built. Because he could honestly say, this is my God. This is the God of my father, Isaac. God doesn't even mention Abraham. And I wonder, I, like I started thinking as a father, I'm like, man, will my kids say the God of my father? I mean, this is the God of my father. This is my God. Or would they say, well, this is the God of my, my grandparents. My grandparents taught me a little bit about this or it trickled down. Because we see, man, as God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is just as much the same God to each one of them. He speaks to each one of them. They follow diligently each one. He is their God. And I want my children, I want the next generation to say that he was my God, that he was our God. And I want them to know them the same. And I want, man, if I, if I, I want to build, a, not a real altar, but like, you know, figuratively speaking, an altar for them to use, for them to go to, that I've built for them, a foundation that, that has been built by God. Um, here we see Isaac's faith has truly been passed on to his son. This is the eighth time. And if you were counting, I know you were, that, that God appears to Jacob. This is the eighth time. And when he calls out to Jacob, when he says, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob answers with the only answer we should ever have when God calls out our name. What does he say? He says, here I am. Here I am. And here God reiterates the promise, the same promise that he made to Abraham, that he will make them into a great nation. God tells him that this is all part of the plan. This trip will fulfill what was promised long ago, when God first called Abraham to leave his country and his people so long ago in Genesis 12, that God will make them into a great nation. We haven't seen that promise fulfilled yet, but here he's reiterating those things I said all those years ago to your grandfather when I first called him out. This is still part of that plan. Generations later, I'm still working out my plan. I will build you into a great nation. And so here in verse 8, they begin to make the list, the beginnings of this great nation. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. Got to make sure we point that out. For everyone to remember, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan, remember, had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez are Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, uh, Sirid, Elon, and Jehiel. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, these were the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were 33 in all. The sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri. Are y'all writing these down? I don't see any pins moving. Don't y'all want to remember this? Uh, Eredi and Ereli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Beriah. Their sister was Sarah, the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Mal Malkiel, 
These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his father Leah, 16 in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Praise God for Rachel, who just names her children regular things that we can say. Like, I feel like it's all downhill from here. Joseph and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by, um, no, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Um, the sons of Benjamin, he didn't continue in this, uh, was Bela, Bekir, Ashbel, Jerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, uh, Hupin, and Mopin, Hupin. Poor guys, those guys. It's like Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. And, and, and the son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Natali, Jaziel, uh, Juni, Jazer, and Shalem. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were, with, were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went in Egypt, were 70 in all. Um, so I'm just going to talk about this number. Well, first of all, I just want to point out, this is the first time that Moses, who is the author, refers to the descendants of Israel as a nation. And all their sons and their sons are listed so that we get a total of 66 people. Ur and Onan are not counted uh, because they died in Canaan, as we all, as we all know. <laughs> it's uh, historical. Um, I do want to talk about these numbers for a second, okay? It doesn't include, because we get this picture of like 66 people in these carts going um, over to Egypt, but it doesn't include wives or servants. So though it only says 66 people went, what, like people, you know, in all the commentaries I read, some people are like, it was more like 200. Some people are like, it was more like 1,000 to 2,000. There was a lot of people that went. Um, and you, if you, just to say how we know this, how we get these numbers. If you remember, when Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, uh, Lot was taken captive in Genesis 14, and Abraham set after him. And it says in Genesis 14, 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out his 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So his grandfather had 318 trained men in his, uh, in his camp, and they would have had descendants also. Um, so, and not only that, but if you remember also when Simeon and Levi killed all the men in Shechem, right, um, as punishment for their prince raping their sister, it said they took many women and children as slaves and concubines. So though we get a list of 66 people, we're getting the direct male descendants and that one sister of Jacob. But many, many more went into the land. It was a, a huge caravan. Um, and some of them wanted to take a shortcut and went through this pass through the mountains and they got trapped there. They reverted to cannibalism, but that's a different story. Um, no, wait, that's a different thing altogether. I'll forget that. That didn't happen here. Um, so the 70, if it wasn't clear, because it said 66 and then it said 70. And the extra four are Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the number 70 is important. There's a reason they've given us this number 70. Um, I know we're flipping a lot back and forth. I know no one's flipping with me, but I'm flipping uh, back a lot. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about this number 70, just to show, man, everything is connected in the Bible with this number 70. So in the table of nations, in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations descended from Adam through Noah. And here are listed 70 descendants of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 32.8, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, 
when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. So this is, this is God, where we started out with 70 nations in the table of nations, and now we have 70 here. God is showing this new, this new start, this new beginning. Because with Adam, right, he, he formed the world and Adam, Adam fell. And so the world wasn't as it was uh, originally planned to be, right? Um, but the, the blessing that was originally given to Adam is now going to come through God's chosen people, this new 70, right? It, it's a new start, um, a new humanity, um, as Abraham is kind of seen as a new Adam, right? The, the, the new group of people that God is going to make his plans uh, in the world through. And one more, one more thing I want to look at with these number things, because, man... I don't know if this will ever come up in conversation, but I just like to be able, like, you might hear this, and this is what people will say. Um, so in Acts 7.14, when Stephen is being stoned to death, uh, he gives a speech, and in his speech, he says, After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. That's an error. So now we know this whole thing's false. <laughs> but that's what people say. They're like, aha! Aha! These people can't count, so we can't trust in anything they say. But the 75 that Stephen refers to includes Ephraim and Manasseh's two sons each. That's four. Two plus two is four. And one grandson, right? They're keeping track of all the Israelite, the Israelite like forefathers that came out of there. It was a different number going out and going in. Okay, so now that we have that squared away, because I know people were just like, wait, wait a minute. Stephen says 75, I believe, in Acts 14. Um, so I want to square that up. All right, so now let's continue, and we're done with the names, which is good for me. So now Jacob, in verse 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. It's funny, my mom always says this to me, and my sisters are always so jealous and upset, like now you're ready to die, that Nathan's finally here, but we have a link that they don't understand. So, um, sorry, Leanne. Um, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So in the beginning of this passage, it's a short little note, but it tells us that Judah went ahead of the group to scout the way. This job of scouting out the way is typically reserved for the firstborn, who is Reuben, and the second and thirdborn are Simeon and Levi. So the fact that Judah, the fourth, is being sent to scout out the land is showing that Jacob is already putting, uh, putting Judah in the place of the firstborn, skipping over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And we've slowly seen this take place as Judah um, kind of takes the lead here with his, with his family. And then we finally get to see Jacob reunited with his son, Joseph. 
And, and it doesn't go, go into it too much. Sometimes don't you want like, man, we've been waiting years and years for this, 40 years. I want the reunion. What did they say? I want the glance from a distance, right? Like it, it doesn't tell us anything except that Joseph wept on his father's neck for a good while. Wow, that sounded country. You heard my country come out there. I was like, good while. It was a long time, that while. Um, um, sorry, so I spent some years in North Carolina. It still comes out every once in a while. Um, but continually, I just want to point out for my own sake, um, continually we see in the Bible strong men of God weeping and very demonstrative. We see David did it. So I don't know where this like stoic male kind of idea came from. So like I just say in that, so you guys know, when I cry up here, it's very manly and it's very godly, right? <laughs> it's, it, it's all those things. I remember one time this um, lady, I was preaching, and I've been preaching for a while, and she came up and she wanted to pay me a compliment. And she said, um, it's so awesome. Like, I can tell you've really settled in because you don't, you don't cry anymore up there. And I was like, what do you think is happening? You think I'm crying because I'm scared? I'm up there? How ridiculous. Like, I'm a five-year-old up there crying. And so um, I never talked to her again. But, and I didn't say any of those things. I was like, yeah. And then, you know, like someone said something to you, and you're like, yeah. And you walk away, you're like, did I stand that correct? Did I understand what she was inferring? This is what this lady thought of me for years. She just thinks I'm a baby. Um, but that's not why I'm crying. I'm not scared, OK? It's because I'm like feeling what God is saying, right? It's very manly, very godly. That's the sermon. Let's pray. Um, but we, we see once again, again that Joseph has thought of everything. Uh, God has truly given him the wisdom to fulfill God's plan. He tells his family, he's setting them up. Okay, listen, before you go before Pharaoh, when he asks you what you do for a living, you make sure you tell him the truth because he's going to hate that because it's really gross, right? And th th this will ensure that he keeps us far away from the other Egyptians, and that's what's going to give us this land, because we're so disgusting to them, right? Like, in fact, in many Egyptian monuments, shepherds are depicted as, like, dirty, unshaven, deformed. They're definitely shown to be, like, an inferior people. They're like, yes, you know, like, <laughs> Igor. Um, and, and honestly, but this is a good thing, right? This social stigma... But how disgusting they are is going to play a crucial role in protecting Israel from intermingling and losing their identity in Egypt. Sometimes when we're not accepted into a group of friends or in this place in society we want, right? And we're not like elevated to the place we want. We're not like fitting in. We, we, we feel like, oh, man, I'm not good enough. Why, why isn't this happening for me? Well, what if God is protecting us? From, from intermingling too much. And I'm not saying like having friends that aren't Christians. I'm not saying that. But sometimes the groups we want to be in and the people we want to be like, and we just never quite can get in and we think it's because there's something wrong with us. It might be because there's something right with us and God is protecting us. Right? I remember when I, was, um, when I was in high school, I was in ninth grade and I started hanging out with um, a really like bad crowd. And, um, and my mom was just like too strict for me to be super cool with them, you know what I mean? Like, you can't be a super cool druggie and be like, man, I'll do drugs all day, but I gotta be home at 8.30. I got church tomorrow morning, right? Like, I think I'm crying. No, I was kidding. <clears throat> but, and then one time I like snuck out of the house. I know I probably told this story many times. Snuck out of the house and had to call my mom the next morning to come pick me up for church from the other house. 
it's like my sisters love rubbing this story in my face, but um, which is never mind. Um, but and I got grounded for like a month. But when you get grounded for a month in high school, that's not cool. And so it really, man, it filtered me out from that group. That month of being grounded, they didn't really want much to do with me afterward. And it, and I kind of was like, man, I'm not cool enough, and felt bad. But I was protected from going further into that group. So sometimes when you're feeling, if you've ever felt like, man, why can't I be a part of this group I want to be a part of? And your first thought is always, I'm not good enough. I'm not cool enough. And you need to look at it from the eyes of God. And maybe you're special to God and he's protecting you. Maybe he's protecting you from something you want because it doesn't fit in with what amazing things he has for you. So that here, they're going to get this land. Everything seems to be going pretty well, right? We can't even imagine, how could this go south? It can't possibly go south, right? They're given a good land, a blessing from Pharaoh. I bet everyone is on cloud nine. They're like, this is amazing. We got the best land in all of Egypt. I mean, we're not on cloud nine because we know what happens, right? Don't you know what happens? Do we know? Someone raise their hand with me, please. Mom, you know, I'm glad. Good. You probably told me. It was like a punishment. Be like, you don't want to end up like those Israelites, 400 years in captivity. Um, we know what happened, but I don't think that we, I mean, we, ha- we can read the Bible, we know what happens, but I, I, I think that Jacob also knows what's going to happen. I think Jacob has an inkling of what's going to happen. See, we might think he went to Beersheba to offer sacrifices just to kind of say goodbye to God. Or be like, hey, I just want to, you know, I just want to get this one final thing in. But this isn't like one last trip to the altar before he goes to Egypt for a while. I think he is very, very anxious about this trip. I think he has some serious reservations, some trepidation. If we have learned anything in this story, one of the most amazing things about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that they told their sons who God was, what God said. They passed it on. They knew what God had said before. They ingrained it in their children. And Jacob, I know that he knows that God had told Isaac, his father, not to go to Egypt. The last time there was a famine and Isaac wanted to go to Egypt, God said, don't go to Egypt. And and even though this seems like it's the only way to save the family, Jacob, because he wants to honor God, he needs to know Hey, it can't be, hey, this is a great situation that God's worked out. I'm not just going to look at the signs. Of course God's worked this out. It's a good sign. No, he needs to know from God that this is what God wants. Not just like this is what appears to be right. He's not just following the signs. He's seeking God to be clear. Is this what you want? Is this what you want me to do? Because he also knows that God told his grandfather Abraham in Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. So Jacob anticipates this might be that moment. This might be that moment. It might look good now. But what does this mean? And this is why he goes to Beersheba. This is why he has to go make those sacrifices and talk to God and seek God's will because of what he knows 
God has said. And he believes God's word. He believes God's word. He believes that what God has said will come to pass. Because everything looks great here, except for the word of the Lord. And God has promised that it will end well. He says, it will end well. I'll fulfill my promise through this. But it's never a good feeling when you know or anticipate that hard times are coming. When you know in advance, hard times are coming. Tribulations are coming. Sometimes we focus so much on the trial ahead or the tribulations ahead that it kind of cancels out the end result in our mind. We can't even think or focus on the good result because of the, of the trial, because of the tribulation, sometimes because of just the transition we're in. We're making a transition and we're focused so much on the difficulties of that transition that we can't even see or rejoice for what that's going to bring. We can't even, we're too consumed with the trial to, to think about the end result. I mean, an example of this, you can see Christians who get like hyper-focused on like the tribulations that will happen. Will they come before or after Jesus comes back? And they live in fear so much of these tribulations that we read about in Revelation that it's like, I mean, th these are a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. And Christians are like, oh man, ah, tribulations. And it's like, yeah, but then Jesus is coming back. And we can't even focus on the end result. There's probably more. There's probably more people talking about the tribulation. Someone's read Revelation. They write me about, man, is this for real? We're gonna have to go to these tribulations. You're like, but do you read the end? Do you read the end? That's a good thing, right? We can't allow the trials and tribulations or transitions that may be ahead to bind us up with so much fear that we cannot have hope for what God's promise He's gonna do through it. Because God's always gonna do something through it. But our hope is not just in the end result. Uh, we don't just see God in the end. We see him in the midst of the trial. We've grown so accustomed to saying, God is with me. We say it all the time, God, God is with me. God is with you. That like we, we miss what is happening here in this, in this little interaction between Jacob and God. See, in this time, people believed the gods were like territorial. They stayed in certain territories, right? This is the God of the mountain. This is the God of the sea. This is the God of this nation. This is the God of this nation. And they stay in those areas. That is what their power is limited to. The God of the sea, his power is limited to the sea. The God of the mountain, his power is limited to the mountain. In fact, some people think El Shaddai, which means mighty God, they think it originally means, because they don't really know how to translate this, that it means God of the mountain. Because many of their first interactions with God were on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And so El Shaddai, they think they might have just called him God of the mountain. But in saying this, did they believe that he resided on that mountain? And when you came down from the mountain, he was no longer there, right? I mean, if you think about it, like when Moses would go up and talk to God on the mountain and come back down, the people are like, what did he say up there? Like he's not down there. You know what I mean? And they're like, we were down here building the golden calf because you were up with him there on the mountain. How could he know, right? So we see this idea that, that God, gods were like localized. And God, we haven't seen him tell them, he hasn't told Abraham or Isaac or Jacob anything different. He hasn't said anything different. So Jacob has a very real fear that when he goes to Egypt, when he leaves Canaan, he might be leaving God behind. He might be leaving God's protection. 
He might be stepping out from under the area where God is in control, that, that he's stepping into something where God may have no power there. And it is here that God first reveals to his people, no, I will go with you. I will go with you and I will bring you out. We hear him say that and we think, oh, that's cool. God's going with him and God will bring him out. What a cool promise. But to Jacob, hearing this for the first time, man, I'm going to this, this powerful, powerful nation with their own gods, many powerful gods, and I might be stepping out of your protection. And God says, no, no, no. I will go with you and I will bring you out. I will be the one to walk you there. I will be the one to walk you out. And this gives Jacob the courage to go. Because he's like, you're going to go with me. You are going to go with your people. You have power there. You have power in the trial. You have power in the tribulation. You're going to be present with me through that darkness. Well, if you're going to be present with me, if you're going with me, then I, then, then I can go. If you're going to bring me out, if you tell me you're going to bring me out, then I will go. That gives me the courage that you are still with me, that you're going before me and behind me and preparing the way that this is part of your plan. And we discover the same things when we go through trials and tribulations and transitions and darkness. God is there too. In fact, it's often there when we first discover. Like he says to us, no, I am here with you. I am here and I will bring you out. I will bring you out myself. And honestly, the moments I've seen God, the moments I've become closer to God, the moments I've seen his power and his faithfulness and his goodness is in the trials, is in the darkness. So often we pray like, Lord, just let me know your goodness. Let me know your faithfulness. If you want to know someone is faithful, when do they prove their faithfulness? In the hard times when any, everyone else leaves and they are still there and they're still there in the end. And that's how we know God's faithfulness. That's how we know God's goodness is in the trials, is in the transitions, in the darkness, in those places we think he's not. And we're, when we're in those places, when times are dark, we always feel like, man, I'm praying to the ceiling. He's not hearing me. He's not talking back. Maybe he's, he's not here. And that is when he is there the most. That's when he's there the most. And so the, our hope is not just getting out of this situation. When we are put through trials and tests, God, that is when we see God in those situations. That is when we come to know him more. That is when we come to know his voice, to know his voice. When we need him and he is there, when we need him and he is there, we'll find it over and over and over and over that in our battles, God is with us and he will bring us out over and over again. Whatever you're going through right now, when it feels like God is not there. Remember this, speaking to you, I am with you. I will go with you there and I will bring you out. Not like man, some circumstance is going to happen and you'll eventually be through that. And then you and me will dance in the sun again. I'll be here in the sun waiting and we will dance a joyous dance. And he says, I'm going to be there through that trial. And by the end of that, you will know me better. You will know me more. You will hear my voice. You will know my goodness. You will know my faithfulness. And going through those hard times is when you realize how much he loves you. Because he's there when no one else is. He listens when no one else does. He loves you when you're despicable. 
He loves you when you're at your worst. And it is then in those moments, in those darkness, when you're at your worst and you're alone, when, you, when God is with you, that you know, <coughs> Jesus really does love me. Not just because the Bible tells me so, but because he's been there with me in the darkness. Because he's been there with me in the trials. He's been there with me through every transition, times I was scared and nervous. He always, always, always proved faithful. And he will time and time again. Let's pray. Lord. I just thank you that you are faithful, Lord. I thank you that we all know, that we all know, unlike Jacob, we know for a fact when we go into trials that you are with us and that you will bring us out, Lord. And I've seen it in my life. I've seen you go with me and bring me out, Lord. And I just pray right now over your people, over this church as they sit in trials and people sitting in their own tribulations and sitting in transitions and having questions of what is to come. What are they to do? How can they please you? How can they make the right decision? How will they get through this? How can they move on? I pray that they will know that you are with them, that we will, that we will feel your presence, that we will hear your voice saying, I will go with you there. I am with you. I am in. I am with you through it. And I will bring you out, Lord. And we trust in you. We trust in your word. We trust in your promises and we stand on it. And we have hope not just in the end result, but in knowing you more. And we have hope knowing that you are with us in our trials. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.